the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. Welcome to episode 117 of Magic Markets. This is going to be a very interesting, very international show. You've got me, the finance ghost, with my South African accent. You've got Mohamed Nalla with his South African accent usually, but sometimes more Canadian, depending who we're speaking to. And then we have our guest today who is as authentically North American as you'll ever find in your life. And I'm going to let Mo introduce her, but uh, get ready for some fun accents on this show. And more importantly, I think a lot of really cool international insights. Ghost, always a pleasure doing this with you. Uh, I guess always a pleasure getting the abuse around the accent as well, <laughs> simply because it, it does evolve over time. But, but this is not about me. It's not about my accent. I mean, Ghost... Today, very excited to be introducing a longtime friend of mine, Rachel Ziemba. So Rachel and I go way back when. So by way of introduction, I mean, Rachel, I think it was more than 10 years ago, was at Rubini Global Economics. Mm -hmm. She was the head of emerging markets at Rubini. Uh, for those of you, Rubini Economics is the one with the infamous slash famous Nouriel Rubini. So Rachel did her time there. Uh, subsequently left and started up Ziemba Insights. Now, Rachel comes with as much street cred in the kind of global macro geopolitical space as you can hope to find. Rachel sits on a number of think tanks in, in Washington, D.C. She's very active in the policy space. She's advised pension funds. She's advised sovereign wealth funds. So Rachel comes with that kind of street cred. And so it's a great pleasure to bring Rachel, who's someone I regularly kind of ping for views and comments, onto Magic Markets so that we can share some of that discussion with our listeners today. Rachel, welcome to Magic Markets. Thanks for having me. I'll do my best to live up to that that, that introduction. I'm a fan of the work that the two of you uh, do. And of course, kind of this sort of, I've always found that South Africa is one of the sort of markets where people are sort of very attuned to the global macro trends that are then relevant to the local markets. And, um, you know, even from times when I, when I spent more time visiting in the context. So yeah, look forward to the conversation. And Rachel, you've had every iteration of Mo. You've had him all the way from the Hazard Muhammad days through to the Hey Muhammad, <laughs> which I live with now. Um, and that's exciting. You know, I, I've also had that. So there we go. You and I have one thing in common, at least, as we've known Wonderful. Mo for a long time. Yes. No, I, I think on one of one of my trips, uh, I think I, I used to read his work uh, when he was at the bank. And I just said, you know what? I'll just shoot an email to this guy. He seems to be writing interesting stuff and caught up on one of my marketing trips. So uh, and, and it's a wonder of all of these sort of different things we're doing out there in the marketplace that we get to stay in touch and, and try to keep each other honest. And all of us just trying to figure out what might be going on next in markets. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's, it's why I've got you on the show today, Rachel, is because there's just so much going on, right? There's so much interesting stuff happening. So, you know, for context, I reached out to you because I know you've been very busy, you know, traveling. I know you were in London, you were in Montreal, you are in DC all very recently. 
and you've attended a number of kind of energy seminars, I reached out because I wanted to pick your brain with regards to some of the stuff that's happening in energy markets. Uh, I know you're an expert on sanctions. So I'm kind of just laying out a roadmap and we can kind of mm -hmm. decide how this discussion goes. But I know, for example, you've done a lot of work with regards to sanctions. Now, sanctions are important in the context of Russia and Russia is important in the context of South Africa because you know South Africa was being courted by uh, Sergei Lavrov. They were being courted by Janet Yellen not too long ago, just a couple of weeks ago. And in fact, I think we touched on a, a different uh, forum where it was you, myself, and Marco Papik, where he had said South Africa is like a lot of emerging markets out there being geopolitically promiscuous. I'm going to borrow <laughs> that from, from Marco. And you know, I, I think that promiscuity is going to maybe come with some pressure points, certainly now that there's an ICC arrest warrant for mm -hmm. Putin and Putin might be visiting South Africa on the BRICS summit. So we want to weave all of that in. And after I reached out to you, we also had a, a banking crisis in the U.S. thrown into the mix and that spilled over to Europe. So I think a lot for us to touch on. Rachel, what's top of mind for you in that kind of overarching map, overarching framework? Where would you like to start? Sure. I, I think the where to start is really this interplay of demand, you know, sort of actual underlying demand, sort of where are we in the, the sort of global cycle? And then also where are we in the sort of liquidity cycle, right? Because I think if anything, and when I look back a month ago, right, so late February, um, which happens to be when I was sort of showing up in London for International Energy Week, there was sort of this view in the marketplace, sort of fair amount of optimism, maybe optimism is too strong, but you know, uh, sort of a view of the worst of a global recessionary risks had been avoided. China was coming back. China was going to increase its demand for commodities, particularly energy in the second half. You know, I think there was there's always a hope springs eternal, right, about how much stimulus China is going to do, how strong is the underlying demand in the marketplace, right? Because there's a lot of people in the marketplace that think we're going back to 2010 or 2009. And, you know, China, Chinese policymakers aren't willing to and can't expand their balance sheets in the same way they did back then. But still, sort of a better, a stronger demand year than 2022. And, you know, and this sort of view of, you know, the some of the recessionary risks in Europe had been avoided. Um, yes, there were concerns about what happened as the Fed, you know, sort of the, the, the Fed hikes and the central bank normalization sort of fed through. But there was sort of this view of we were going to end up with shortages. And so I think there's this question. And, and so you had and, and friends of me, you know, people who track this even closer than I, people like Roy Johnson, who, who, who like you, Mo, is, is, is based in um, the Toronto area, you know, sort of really sort of were highlighting the bullishness present from financial market actors into the energy space. And what I think happened as there were many questions about spillovers from Silicon Valley Bank and the banking sort of dynamics and this real question of, you know, how healthy, you know, the financial system is, you had a lot of that sort of highly speculative bullishness, not fundamental, but sort of coming out of the market. And so you had this big drop down in, in sort of the oil price. And still there's this underlying question of how strong is demand going to be? Now, some of this dynamic is, you know, we see, you know, typically when there's financial stress, you know, a lot of assets are become correlated. That's not really a surprise, you know, and global central banks up to this point, I think have responded to say, well, 
you know, we really want to avoid systemic shock. Um, we can go into those sort of dynamics. But I still think there's this underlying question of how strong the demands, you know, sort of going to be. And then coupled with this, we have, and, and I'm focusing here on, on energy markets, but we can go broader. We have a dynamic where you have the sanctions in place that are adding frictions, you know, markets are kind of getting around them. But one of the big winners has been people that own tankers and ships because a lot more oil is transiting, you know, via ship. It's going to new destinations and the like. So I think you have a dynamic where there are more kind of pressure points for something sort of to go wrong. But I think ultimately we're in a period right now as we're talking where this sort of global macro liquidity story is as as return to the fore as an important driver. You know, we paradoxically, of course, have seen all these expected rate hikes kind of come out of the market and in that way. And so as we speak today on what is it, you know, March 21, um, you know, this has been sort of an up day, right? And, and that sort of story. But I think this interplay between, you know, what are the risks from higher financing costs throughout the global economy and how strong is this sort of next phase of the recovery going to look like? Yeah, so, I mean, Rachel, you've touched on a number of very interesting things. And I mean, like you say, we're speaking now just kind of prior the next Fed decision. Uh, by the time this podcast is published and released, we'll know where the Fed's headspace is at. But you know, it's very interesting that some of those bottlenecks have just shifted around a little bit over the course of kind of the last couple of years. You know, we had these massive bottlenecks that were priced into markets uh, and we touched on energy. But, you know, if we look at pretty much anything, so let's look at, for example, at the peak, at the height of the kind of Ukraine, Russia start of the war, we had fears around wheat prices and wheat levels fell from around, what, 1300 to, to half that right now. We had uh, similarly, you know, oils, you know, let's call it, what was it, 120 back down to around 70 right now. Not quite half, but but close enough. We, we had similarly with that, this big push for clean energy and, you know, lots of talk. I'm, I'm trying to latch on to, I guess, market themes that, you know, push prices so far ahead. We had lithium and, you know, lithium is probably half where it was back then as well. So that evolution of where the pressure points have, I guess, manifested has almost moved from the underlying commodities, if you want to call it that, to other actors and other players in the value chain. Now, the reason I want to raise that is you raise the issue around tankers being winners. This is important for us because sometimes you look at a macro theme, but the beneficiary is not the obvious beneficiary. So if we could latch onto some of that, just based on you know Energy Week, you were just recently there, you've kind of touched on, on tankers. That coupled with the fact that sanctions are, and I know this is kind of your, a passion project for you, sanctions are creating some of these disconnects as well in maybe the underlying commodities you've got, for example, Russia's grain deal that's recently, you know, kind of hit the headlines. Who are the winners in this kind of global context, notwithstanding the liquidity cycle issues? Who are the winners if we look three to five years out? I think some of the winners are those that are able to be kind of intermediaries and by which I'm thinking both companies, um, but also countries. Right. And, you know, we talked a little bit sort of earlier, you know, I mean, you, you referenced Marco's comments about, you know, sort of countries that were sort of in between. I think there are countries that maybe have been able to kind of take on some more sort of market share. Now, maybe that's a, a shorter term 
some of it's a shorter term story. The intermediary is a sort of, you know, tanker story. I also think there are probably some relative winners in those who are both involved in building out some of these alternative and maybe it seems right now redundant supply chains in areas where the sort of governments, whether it's the United States or Canada or Australia or Japan or, or fill in the blank, are really sort of thinking about trying to build out new supply chains, whether that's in semiconductors, which is already a kind of more concentrated market in terms of the players, but also in terms of mining and processing supply chains, and even some of the car companies are getting sort of involved. Now, of course, it's all in a time where industrial policy kind of cycles up. There are obviously going to be cases of, of waste. There's going to be cases of projects that don't quite pan out. There's going to be political pet projects that go along with it. Maybe some of those political pet projects can actually be beneficial. I'm, I'm thinking a little bit now of the, the news out of the United States over the last few weeks that companies that want to get money from the CHIPS Act need also to invest in childcare. And Mo, you sitting in Canada, you know, no sort of, um, you know, and, and anywhere around the world, I think one knows kind of, you know, childcare costs, but how, how difficult. So to what extent does that, does sort of putting new rules and sort of things in place does it lead to kind of, you know, maybe it doesn't seem to be directly productivity enhancing, but if it brings more people, the right people into the workforce, maybe there's some benefits there. So I guess all of this is a theme and, and I I'm, I'm, don't mean to dodge your question, I'll come back to it. But this is a theme of much greater willingness of governments to get involved in supply chains, including in developed economies, right? There are jurisdictions in the world where governments or sort of SOEs or linked projects were always quite active. I mean, I started my career spending time on a lot of those in the emerging world, uh, places, you know, especially places in the Middle East and China. But it's striking to me that we're now in a point where, you know, there's a lot more willingness from countries, you know, countries like the U.S. to really kind of get involved in these supply chains. And I think that the interesting question mark there is, can they invest through the cycle? How realistic are some of the investment goals? You highlighted that lithium saw this big run up and then sort of fall back down. Um, I think that has to do with short term demand perspective. And it's, you know, maybe not a, a great price signal kind of uh, market to really think about what demand is going to be over the sort of next five years. But, you know, this if we look ahead at the electric vehicle deployment throughout the world and all the other things we have batteries in, that this, this is going to be a segment where, where, where there'll be demand. The question is, do these governments getting more involved, do they sort of get in and out? I think the other interesting question sort of that brings us maybe to sort of the, the geopolitical links is that we're in an environment where you have sort of not only some more aggressive developed economies getting involved in these supply chains, you have a continued trend of the U.S. and others getting involved on the restrictive side of economic statecraft, with sanctions, with export controls. And you also have a number of countries stepping up and saying, well, wait, where are our interests, right? Um, and so you see this in places, you know, sort of countries in the Middle East, you see it with, with South Africa, you see it with Brazil, all countries that have, you know, maybe at different times kind of tried to chart a different path. But we're in an area where I think a lot of entities are thinking about how can we align a different way? Can we align with a variety of different actors? 
And so I think it creates opportunities, but it also creates risks, particularly depending on how some of these players, you know, there's also an opportunity for, for overreach. So I'm going to stop there because I'm, I'm uh, you know, want to bring it back to markets and hear what you guys have to say. Well, I'll make one comment on this, which is just around the sort of commodities and obviously seeing it among South African investors on the ground. I mean, the JSC is very commodity sure. heavy. South Africa has historically been very commodity heavy. And I know coming into kind of where we are in the cycle, there was this very pro-commodity, pro-energy. If you just throw money at energy and commodities, you'll do well. You know, and I had a look the other day and, and obviously the coal driven companies, for want of a better description, the very coal heavy companies have had a great time in 2022, specifically in less so this year. Um, so, you know, if you look at the share prices of the Glencores of this world, Anglo-American, et cetera, et cetera, where there's potentially these big sort of core energy underpins, for want of a better description, it gets quite interesting. You know, you look at the more uh, single commodity focused businesses like gold, you know, they've finally now, finally coming to their own in the last couple of weeks, right? <laughs> With this banking contact, finally, inflation didn't help gold. It took a pseudo banking crisis to actually give any love to gold at all. Uh, you know, your platinum group miners didn't necessarily have the best run because the problem is inflationary costs in actually getting the stuff out the ground. You know, if the commodity itself is not giving you decent gains, then you don't end up offsetting the, the cost of actually getting the stuff out of the ground. So I guess the comment I just wanted to make is, is something I've observed is, you know, you, you can understand that we're going into this energy cycle and it's a great cycle, et cetera. And for those who are not necessarily careful with how they invest in that, you know, if you go and invest in the wrong commodity, sucks to be you, you know, and unfortunately you can sometimes get really caught out by ETFs, for example. So like the Resi index, you know, Rachel, for your benefit on the JSE is very gold heavy and a lot of Sassel which is then oil, you know, there's not a lot of other stuff in there. So it, it's just interesting. And it's maybe just a warning to investors, which is always just go and do the work to understand <laughs> commodities is a big word <laughs> with a lot of things in it. And it doesn't always mean go and buy your three friendly local platinum stocks and you'll have a great year. No, completely right. And I think that question mark and whether you're talking about commodity indices or whether you're talking about emerging market indices or whatever you're doing, that thing of, well, what are you actually investing in? What sectors do those entities invest in? I mean, I know in, in the sort of emerging market sort of space, this sort of dynamic, and there are times where one wants to kind of have a very large weight to greater China and dynamics, but there are other parts in a cycle where one doesn't want to. So yeah, I think that advice of really thinking about the theme you're trying to sort of capture, also thinking about how exchange rate. So, so you rightly highlight the labor costs and the supply chain issues that might have limited those companies sort of scaling up and supply chains kind of can cover a lot of evils, uh, right, in that sort of context. Um, you know, there can be times when the commodity does well, but the companies producing it don't, either because they're also involved in other things, right? And that's why it can be harder, sort of one thinks about where the, the EV plays and so on. Well, a lot of the EV plays, unless they're sort of smaller cap, it's the sort of big automakers and they've got a lot of, you know, other things going on. So I think your advice is, you know, is accurate. And and I also think that this is also a case where it can be challenging to kind of unpack the difference between entities and projects that are kind of trading on public markets 
versus, you know, sort of private sort of opportunities and the time horizon as well, because I actually think and, you know, I know we sort of started out sort of saying, well, the sort of view in the marketplace was for this, you know, sort of bullish, you know, energy year, uh, you know, I mean, or I think there were two things going on early in the year. It was a sort of bullish, you know, a relatively bullish oil, maybe not as good as last year, but also a view that the, the Western sanctions on Russia weren't very meaningful because markets would find a way around it. And those two pieces didn't quite compute, right? And, you know, I think we're sort of now in this question mark of really, you know, it's 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 overly simplistic to say, but this question mark of, I, I do think a lot of things come back to sort of, you know, how strong is the demand out of China? How much are some of the dynamics going on now these financial cycles in, in, in the U.S. going to be a factor in terms of leading, you know, leading to more precautionary savings, you know, sort of and, you know, and, and the like. So, so, so those are some of the things I'm sort of, you know, grappling with. And at the same time, I think we have a dynamic of, you know, look, a, you know, may, maybe a little bit of softening in the sort of dynamics of the U.S. consumer market is not such a bad thing. But that question mark, I think people are going to be looking at is saying, well, okay, well, the global central banks have kind of mitigated some of the systemic risk, but there's still this question mark of how weak are some of the balance sheets? Because these banks that have sort of been teetering, they're not the only investment portfolios that maybe have bond portfolios that would be underwater if they had to mark to market. And that's, I think, an issue that, I mean, we haven't sort of looked through it in, in sort of so much detail, but also what about for some pension funds, right? And maybe they don't have to mark to market. In some jurisdictions, public pension funds and even private pension funds were already having challenges kind of with their financial sort of dynamics. So yeah, lots of moving pieces. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to get, you know, sort of get to some more answers. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the pension fund space, I mean, we won't even comment about what's happening in, in France at the moment with pension reform and Macron kind of surviving no confidence. I, I want to touch on a couple of points, Rachel, because it, it, this weaves together the liquidity cycle in the U.S. It weaves together, you know, the energy view. Uh, it weaves together, you know, just, uh, you know, pet projects, political pet projects, specifically now in the Middle East. So let, let, let me jump straight into it, right? If energy prices have come off, now we know there's the concept of the petrodollar, where effectively, you know, those nations all run massive current account surpluses. They cycle that back into U.S. treasuries. That's the old kind of structure or architecture of the world. Now, as the world pushes towards clean energy, A, that starts to chip away arguably at the foundations of how the petrodollar system works, possibly. There's also the component of if energy prices come off, that's going to slightly kind of erode the ability for Middle Eastern players to kind of cycle that money back into the kind of U.S. Treasury market, having an impact on liquidity. We saw it now in the recent kind of credit suisse situation where Saudi national said, well, actually, for regulatory purposes, we're not going to step in. And so eventually kind of UBS had to take credit suisse out. The kind of Middle Eastern pockets of money, which have historically run very deep, they're quite instrumental in rescuing many players, even during global financial crisis, are now arguably either being eroded or being redirected towards direct investment in the region. I mean, again, you're seeing the likes of Neom, for example. You're seeing also increasingly a, a shifting geopolitical, uh, let's call it, I wouldn't call it shifting allegiances, but you're seeing China a lot more active in the region. You've seen China, for example, putting together the Saudis and the Iranians. Now, this, again, slowly chips away at that circular reference that has, I guess, sustained 
global liquidity markets to a large degree of cycling energy surpluses back into financial markets in the Western world. What is your view on that? Because that has a a long-term secular bearing in terms of a liquidity implication and arguably the cost of funding in developed markets versus emerging markets that I guess appear to be getting together a lot more and maybe using bilateral swap lines, maybe financing, maybe direct investment, changing that game up a little bit. Yeah. So I think the important thing is to step back and say that actually this petrodollar recycling dynamic really some we might be noticing that it's different now, but it actually sort of shifted quite some time ago. We didn't notice it as much five, six, seven years ago because the oil price was low. So there were not petrodollars to recycle. Um, and we had a dynamic where actually sort of either petrodollars or oil or reserve accumulation was shifting. Um, and it's not to say that some players weren't still active, um, but you also had a dynamic where there was more savings out of the U.S. And so U.S. consumers and businesses and, and, and corporations especially were not only buying treasuries, maybe not so much, but they were buying agencies and they were especially buying corporate bonds, right? And that had its own sort of challenges. So the net result was that there were, plenty, there were buyers, that you had the sort of asset inflation and push, and you had a, you know, legacy di- sort of dynamics, which led a lot of that long-term capital, Asian and Middle Eastern and other sort of sovereign funds to say, well, the public markets are really expensive. The private markets are also getting expensive. You know, where do we go? And if anything, part of how we got to the situation that we've, we've gotten to with Silicon Valley Bank and some of the others was an almost an element of you had these tech unicorns that were sitting on all this money. They were parking it somewhere and the banks almost didn't know what to do with it. Uh, you know, so it's a different type of, of liquidity mismatch. And so I think a lot of smart people over the last sort of, you know, year were saying, well, you know, when you go from zero to four or five percent interest rates and not very long, something breaks. Right. The question is almost like, how do you figure out how to fail safely? Right. You can't be fail safe. And so some people I was talking to a few weeks ago, you know, we were worried about what is sort of corporate interest payments look like? And I'm coming back to the Middle East very soon, I promise. But, you know, what, what is sort of, you know, corporate rates sort of, you know, look like? What about corporate payments being due? Those kind of dynamics. So that sort of challenge. If we look at the higher energy surpluses of, of last year, places like Saudi Arabia, indeed, a lot more was getting absorbed at home. And then there's been an important shift over the last several years that even that, that Saudi Arabia who used to primarily invest in US treasuries and US equity and pretty liquid stuff already started to invest more in not only at home but in different elements in the US right so they were diversifying from that sort of more liquid assets into investing in Uber and investing in Lucid and you know sort of large strategic stakes and then within other sort of capital holders like places like Abu Dhabi and elsewhere, you had this trend that really started, you know, almost 10 years ago of Adia, the big liquid multi-asset diversified holder wasn't getting new capital. It was going to the strategic investors. And so both at home, but also investing abroad in areas that supported their, their goals at home. Now, I do think that some of these trends are you know, going to continue because there are limited sort of assets. I think, again, we sort of come back to this question mark of, you know, how does China see the risks and rewards of this environment? 
And one of the dynamics that I think continues to be interesting to people is China's ambivalence about the use of its currency abroad, right? So on the one hand, they you know want the, the Chinese producers want to have more certainty and currency dynamics. On the other hand, they don't want to lose control. Right. And China still has capital controls, you know, of a sort. And so they're quite willing, you know, Russia buys things or sort of Russia sells them energy and, and commodities. They they buy, they sell in renminbi, turn around and well, who are they buying from? They need to buy from China and and the like. And so I think when we look at swap lines across the emerging world, I think it's important to note that for right now, it's really China and a number of notes. It's not, I mean, there are some regional dynamics in Asia, the Chiang Mai agreements, but those are almost all among countries that are all surplus holders themselves. So, and I'm not saying that we should necessarily expect something different, but I think we want to watch what the alternatives are. I think we also want to watch China's willingness to extend those. Now, if I look back to a year and a half ago or so, or even right at the cusp of Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine, one of the things people might have been worried about was extensive U.S. sanctions on a target like Russia and what that would do to the U.S. dollar, right? And, you know, there's still lots of people write things about dollar dominance and is it going away and should it and so on. But if anything, the coordination of the G10 has meant that I think the risks of the dollar were less extensive. But it has opened up a bit of a gap politically and to a lesser extent economically uh, so far, but between the West and what people are increasingly calling the global South, emerging world. To be honest, as somebody whose background 20 years ago or so was as an international relations scholar and the like, and we used a lot of terms like the global South. I have not heard it used as much as I have in the last three months as I did since, you know, in, in the early uh, to the 2000s. But that's a, that's a different sort of theoretical point. And if anything, this financial crisis has, if anything, I think solidified um, as well, the kind of the role of the dollar in, 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 in the financial system. But I am watching these kind of different nodes and inflection points, right? And some of it ties into test conversions around uh, central bank digital currencies. Some of it comes down to at what point might China feel comfortable letting two countries that are not neither of which are China engage. Um, also new uh, financial channels. Um, and somewhere to watch, I think, is is gold, right? Ghost, you highlighted that, you know, gold is finally benefiting, you know, sort of, you know, from this financial crisis. But also there's an interesting question. We've seen EM central banks go back into gold last year. And sort of that question, I think it'll be interesting to see to what extent uh, countries are able to sort of use and, and convert that gold. Is it just about savings? So I'm always struck when I think about the political nature of things like dollar dominance with this question of I don't want to underreact and I don't want to overreact. And so as market participants and as analysts, we almost have to set for ourselves, like, what might be the kind of news we'd expect that would cause us to sort of say we're clearly on a path. And right now, I think there's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of jockeying. Final thing I say, and I'm, I'm you know, on the China, the Saudi-Iran deal, 
what was most interesting for me was, of course, that both countries allowed China to take some of the credit, you know, for it. Other countries were involved in early rounds of negotiating, Oman um, and, and, and others, but both that China was willing to take the credit at a time when they are also trying to stand up and they have their manifesto for, you know, sort of uh, a ceasefire in, in Ukraine and, and de-escalation, but also that these two countries and Iran in particular is often prickly about global powers having sort of influence. So we'll see what happens, particularly on the ground in places like Yemen, like whether this, you know, sort of grace period building trust, you know, how, how that motivates. But also we'll see what happens if when the next crisis comes up, is China a guarantor or is China just saying, well, obviously anything that de-escalates tensions in the region and maybe sort of slaps the U.S. a bit in the face, that's good for us. So Rachel, this is all obviously super, super interesting stuff. Sometimes it feels far away from South Africa, but it's also not, you know, because the stuff that goes on internationally is what ultimately drives the currency markets, commodity markets, the whole story. And that brings me to, I suppose, my last question. Selfishly, I'm the one still sitting here in South Africa. Where do you see this all playing out for SA? Any thoughts on South Africa's positioning at the moment, emerging markets in general? We've touched on gold. We've touched on China. It's always interesting to know, you know, how people around the world are, are perceiving South Africa right now. Sure. Um, and, you know, I'll give thoughts now. And I'm actually I'm hoping to um, make a, a trip to South Africa this summer, at which point I will have lots of questions and lots of thoughts, you know, and, and the like, because I think, you know, things, you know, sort of things change. So I think that we're one of the interesting trends that I've noted um, about South Africa has actually been the shift on the agriculture. I've always thought of South Africa as being an important player in the commodity space generally, especially metals and, and mining, but this increased role on the soft side, the sort of agricultural commodities, which both have a net benefit of hopefully kind of uh, mitigating some of the inflationary and other food cycles locally, um, right? And there's lots of people smarter than this on, that, 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 than I, but that sort of element of being able to sort of export and, and, and the like. I think where South Africa is concerned, the question mark is whether the government is able, you know, sort of to think about sort of what it's asking for, for some of those different global entities that are sort of courting, you know, courting it. I think from an investment perspective, South Africa has largely benefited from the fact that some of its peer countries have become uninvestable. I'm thinking about Turkey at times. I'm thinking about Russia, obviously, and that there has generally been, you know, you've had the solidity of the banks. You've had, you know, different, you know, the SARB trying to balance act. I know that things like the FATF gray listing came as a bit of a shock to some local markets. You know, I think in practice, and I, I defer in here to sort of to any banking officials, but I think from global banks I've talked to, they already had South Africa and a lot of other entities on relatively enhanced screening. There's so many know your customer, know your transaction, do your AML issues that functionally it might not make that difference, but I know there is a rhetorical blow. And the research that's out there says that countries that are democracies, even if they're sort of flawed and, and sort of you know, sort of have their own challenges. And and believe me, I, I, I live in one, the United States, a flawed democracy. So I'm not trying to be mean to any other countries, but that those are the kind of countries where the pressure points 
to make those uh, policy reforms and to implement those policies, actually there tends to be more leverage. So I think the question mark is, comes back to the issues of the fiscal dynamics as always, it comes to the issues of dealing with the SOEs. And in an environment where debt service costs are high, sort of what space does that leave sort of on the fiscal side? So I think people sort of, you know, maybe there's still some sort of pessimism, but I think there's a lot of dynamics of saying, you know, South Africa, you know, relatively good compared to some of it, you know, some of its peers, you know, maybe not quite as well positioned as some of the Latin American countries, but that sort of financial dynamic. And I think more people should be looking at the range of the kind of commodity supply chains. The challenge on the commodity side that historically I always saw was that element of you could have times when commodity prices were high, but labor and supply chain issues and the like really in the South African context meant they couldn't benefit and scale up and, and get the full benefit. And so I think that's still a question that's, that's out there. You know, obviously we do have a, you know, it's sort of a, a, a challenging sort of liquidity environment. We have sort of question marks about how strong the global and especially Chinese demand are. And so I think some of it's going to come down to how much the policy environment and sort of the companies and, and, and the government kind of can take advantage of it. And historically, there have been times where government has struggled to get out of the way of the sort of businesses, you know, sort of operating. So cautious, you know, sort of, I guess I land on the side of cautious optimism as opposed to cautious pessimism. But you know, I look forward to, um, you know, spending some time and kicking the tires a bit more and then maybe uh, being in communication with you folks about it in the future. Yeah, Rachel, I mean, unfortunately, that's that's what we've got time for this week. And I mean, these conversations are always so big. I, I think the key takeaway of your last kind of comment there is, is very critical to South Africa and South African investments in general, because it almost echoes a view that I kind of had heard when I visited China uh, just prior to moving up to Canada, I was in China and we were speaking to some large investors there. And that whole comment about can the South African government package these investment theses, if you want to call it that, adequately for the international investor to say, this is what we're trying to achieve. This is what the packaging look like. it looks like. And the comment that we had received back then, I was part of an investment delegation out there, was that South Africa does that remarkably poorly compared to, for example, any of the other emerging markets. Now, I want to almost juxtapose on that the view that, yes, South Africa is comparatively better than Turkey, maybe not as good as some of the Latin jurisdictions. My worry is that given the shifting global priorities, for example, a big infrastructure push in the United States means that there are other competitors for global capital that might suck some of those flows that would have ordinarily gone into FDI, for example, into emerging markets. So it's not to say South Africa is not attractive. I agree with you. I think certain sectors, agriculture in particular, is a fantastic opportunity down in South Africa. There are lots of those. It's just, it's you're now going and pushing against a global headwind in terms of competing for that capital, where arguably, you know, it would have been a tailwind, money would have flowed to emerging markets. You're now competing with a lot more players out there. Maybe just as a parting comment, you know, your views on that perspective. I think that's true, unfortunately. I mean, I think some of the dynamic... And that's been interesting, you know, and, and some of it's a question mark of in this higher interest rate environment, how much additional are you getting to go into some of the um, you know emerging markets? Now, I will say it's been interesting in this sort of last couple of weeks. Of course, it's been the sort of 
smaller frontier markets that have dodgier balance sheets that have really unsurprisingly suffered the most, right? That tends to sort of happen. You know, again, some of it, I think, is this sort of optimism out there of, okay, this means the Fed's not going to hike as much and, and, and that kind of uh, sort of relief story in the sort of um, the, the the rate the rate paths, but yeah, I think if there had been a hope, so it was the last several years, you know, there've been some moments where there was sort of more money into um, into emerging markets, but but still really not back to what we were seeing sort of a decade ago, or especially kind of 15 years ago. And, and I don't see that really shifting. I think there's also an interesting, you know, and, and, and we've alluded to this, you know, maybe sort of later we'll have to talk more about the sort of French shoring element. It is striking to me that South Africa is not really in the mix on kind of some of the French shoring supply chains. Now, even countries that are in the mix can't necessarily come back and point to that much. And there's sort of inconsistencies and in, how the sort of the US and Europe and others sort of, you know, view that. I, I think it will be interesting to see, especially as critical mineral and other sort of supply chains kind of ramp up how that goes. We're seeing sort of interesting competition in, you know, sort of the West Coast of, of Latin America between, you know, sort of do countries like Chile and Bolivia and elsewhere go to the kind of technology transfer, move up the value chain that the Chinese provide at a time when sort of the U.S. and others are kind of not really paying attention to these countries as much as as as, as, as I think they, they should be. Um, ditto with sort of Indonesia. So I, I think that's a challenge. The other risk, I think, is a kind of political and policy one that there might be a view in the government of all these entities are courting us. We don't geopolitically or sort of politically, and then there might not be as much a need to, as you say, package it and think about the sort of the economics, the return on capital and, and those sort of uh, dynamics. So that'd be the risk I'd sort of, you know, watch for in this environment. But, you know, I, I think we'll probably have to sort of start, you know, watch it closely, circle back and, and keep up the conversation on all of these things to help everyone uh, make as good investment decisions as we can. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. I think that's great. You've planted some seeds for a future podcast with you. I, I've certainly enjoyed this. Uh, I'm going to point listeners to your Twitter handle. Uh, you you are quite active on Twitter, especially more recently, I think. Uh, so you know, I, I've been enjoying a lot of the stuff on your timeline. So that's at R-E-Z-I-E-M-B-A. So that's R-E-Z-I-E-M-B-A on, on Twitter. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, if anyone's interested to kind of follow and track Rachel's views, that's probably the easiest way to find her. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this. You know, Ghost, I certainly think, you know, it's been an interesting uh, discussion on the geopolitical, on the macro stuff. And we can use this in and around an overarching framework that we then bring and drill down into specific market insights. So unfortunately, like I say, that's where we've got to leave it this week. Uh, to our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed it. You can follow myself. It's at Mohammed Nala and at Finance Ghost. Uh, follow us at, at Magic Markets Pod. That's one word. Uh, until next week, same time, same place. Thanks and cheers. Thanks a lot. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.